Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Shani Reichman, the Acting Director of IPF Atid, which is the Young Professionals Network of Israel Policy Forum. And I'm your other host, Max Webb, the National Organizing Fellow for IPF Atid. Last month, Max and I hosted the first episode of the Atid-led podcast mini-series, which focused on climate change, climate security, and how it affects Israelis, Palestinians, and the prospects for a two-state solution, which, as you know, is what we focus on here at Israel Policy Forum. For the second episode in our climate security mini-series, we wanted to approach regional climate security from a different angle, that of the Israeli government. To get to the bottom of this, we had the honor of speaking with Alon Tal, an MK from the Blue and White Party and a leading environmental activist and academic who has founded countless environmentally focused organizations across Israeli society. We are so excited and honored to be hosting Alon. Welcome to Israel Policy Pod, Alon. Well, Shani and Max, it's a pleasure to be here and greet all your excellent listeners. Let's talk about the climate. Perfect. Thank you. Um, So to start, we'd love to learn a little bit more about your background. Um, Like many of our listeners, you were born and raised in America and ended up making Aliyah. What brought you to Israel? And specifically, how did you get involved in Israeli environmentalism? Well, I grew up in North Carolina in a very, very warm Jewish community. I know I had a good life there as president of my high school class, ran track, and felt very, very embraced by the North Carolina community. So I guess if I had two or three times to go through life, one of them I would have either gone to Wall Street or done something in America. But seeing as I only had one shot and it seemed to me to make sense to move to Israel and tie my fate in with that of the Jewish state. And particularly now we're recording this during Hanukkah, which is, of course, the age of miracles. And I'm actually broadcasting from Modi'in where the Hanukkah miracle began and the whole story of the Maccabees emerged. And I felt like to link my life and aspirations to this sort of long chain of history, which really began in our promised land, made a lot of sense to me. It gave my uh, life a bit of more of a coherence. And uh, quite honestly, uh, after I moved to Israel, I came here first when I was 17 and then and stayed on. Uh, Israel really is the land of miracles and the land of opportunities. And I, uh, I felt it's a good place to raise a family and to uh, be part of this modern miracle, the Reemergence of, as, of the Jewish people as a sovereign nation in their homeland. Um, now, how did I get involved in the environment? Well, I think, you know, I ask them my question all the time. To some extent, I'm a second generation environmentalist. My father was the head of the laboratories for the US EPA uh, down in North Carolina, did a lot of work in air and water pollution and talked about it at the table. Um, but really, uh, when I moved to Israel, I was sort of thinking what kind of a contribution that would be uniquely uh, mine. What did I bring as an American to Israel that could be important? And seeing as I did come from a family with a strong environmental ethos, I'd never really been an environmental activist in America, but I, while I was in law school, I, I first was in the army, I was in the paratroopers, and after the Lebanon war, I went to law school, and I took a job at what eventually became the Ministry of Environment, and uh, then it all came together. And since that time, I feel very, very lucky. I often describe myself as a activists trapped in the body of an academic. So I've sort of walked this fine line between being in universities and running environmental organizations. But recently I've had a career change and I don't do either of those things anymore. Now I'm just a hard-nosed, cynical politician who's trying to raise the green flag in Israel's Knesset and um, doing my best to represent, I think, a growing number of Israelis who feel that we need to do right by the our country and that Israel's on an unsustainable track, but we could be doing better. 
Did you want to share a little bit more about some of the environmental organizations that you actually helped found? Oh, I, I, I would, you might be called a serial environmental entrepreneur. So when I was in, after I finished law school, I went and did a PhD at the Harvard University in environmental science and policy. And I was an advisor there to the EPA and also served a, on a committee for the NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council, which is a wonderful, impressive advocacy group in America who sues uh, polluters and, and represents environmental interests. And I said, my heavens, we need this kind of group in Israel. We already had a, a very, very powerful NGO that dealt with human rights, the happy, the Israeli situation, the Association for Civil Rights in Israel. And I said, we need to bring this kind of uh, approach, this American view of taking the courts and really, really, I would say, leveraging the the standing that it gives the public to make Israel's country a better place. Let's remember that when you are uh, suing a polluter, you really have even the playing field. So even though they may have great advantages over you as an environmental advocate in terms of resources and information, but you have righteousness on your side. And when you're in the court, it's just you and them with your, each of your lawyers. And so as somebody who just finished law school and was looking for something to do with that law degree that was more important than making money, I started a group called Adam Tevavadin, the Israel Union for Environmental Defense, and I'm very, very proud to this day. It remains, I think, Israel's leading environmental organization. I've long since passed over the reins. I think that took place about 23 years ago. But since that time, smarter lawyers than me and, and, and better scientists have come on board, and they really do remarkable work. And I'm very lucky to be able to sort of close that circle and work with them now that I'm in the Knesset. They helped me in the legislation. Uh, subsequent, I started an organization, actually in a, a an environmental studies institute down on Kibbutz Keturah. In those days, I was uh, uh, living in a socialist, uh, intentional community in, in, the, in the South, and uh, the community wanted me to return. I was spending too much time in Tel Aviv flying up in source. and said, you're having a great time. They're suing all these polluters, but what about us? We need to have uh, alternative income streams. We can't just be farmers here. I had a great idea. I wanted to create a, um, a horseback riding ranch at Timna, which is an amazing geological park. They said, oh, don't be ridiculous. You're not a cowboy. You don't anything about horses. Come up with a, a practical idea. So I said, okay, well, let's create an environmental institute for Israelis, Jordanians, Palestinians, other people in the region, international students. I said, oh, that's a great idea. That's very realistic. But uh, against all odds, we managed to pull that off. And again, the Arava Institute remains, I think, a formidable force as a training center and think tank for environmental issues. Uh, and another organization, because you all now all your uh, listeners are so familiar with them, um, when I was running this organization, this law organization, a, a young Australian attorney came in and started working for us on a scholarship fellowship. I said, well, here's the deal. I have this idea to start an organization for the regional things. And he said, no, no, I have a better. I, I thought about this for a while. I would like to do it this way. And I said, OK, your idea is better, but we need you to be an environmental attorney. So 50 percent of your time, I want you to sue polluters, and 50% of the time you can set up this organization, which eventually became EcoPeace. And of course, I'm talking about Guido Bromberg, your guest from last week. And after two or three years, I said, man, you're becoming the, the tail that wags the dog. You, this organization, EcoPeace, needs to break out, and Guido has done amazing things. And I don't know, guys, if you're all aware of it, but your viewers and listeners should know that just literally um, last week, a agreement was signed in Jordan with the uh, government of Jordan, government of Israel, and the United Arab Emirates to create this sort of water energy nexus, which I'm sure he spoke about, 
And so here you have a situation where really a, an organization, an NGO, civil society has changed literally the environmental reality and the, the peace dynamic. Wow, that's really something. Um, every week, we like to ask questions for some of our listeners in addition to our own questions. So we have a segment that we call Ask the Forum. And if for those listeners interested, you can write into policypod at ipforum.org with any questions that are of interest to you, what you're curious about, and we can address them in future episodes. So can you elaborate on this deal? Explain to our listeners how the Abraham Accords have impacted climate security and broader regional cooperation with regards to climate. And I'll share the specific question, which is from Isaac Minkoff, one of our Charles Bronfman conveners based in Boston, which was, how will solar fields in Jordan bolster Israeli climate security? So please touch upon that as well in your answer. Absolutely. But if he's a Charles Bronfman fellow, let's have a, char- a shout out for Charles Bronfman, who's done so much for Israel's environment. The CRB Foundation in Jerusalem is critical to creating the Green Environmental Fund. Charles is a personal friend. Let's talk about this. Well, look, the specific details, the ink is not yet dried, so I haven't want to give it to a full analysis. But the basic idea is this. I'm sure Guidon's sketched it very clearly. Israel has access to the uh, Mediterranean Sea and produces the um, most, uh, uh, the cleanest, most, least expensive, most fantastic desalinated water in the world, okay? And at the same time, we have very little space, and we're not doing so well in terms of our energy. And to increase the amount of water which we're going to need as Israel's population races to ridiculous levels, we're going to need to have more electricity. At the same time, Jordan is perhaps the most water-scarce country on the planet. It was second, but then all of a sudden two million Syrians came, each one of them with their own legitimate water demands, and they are very, very short. And I don't want to rehash Gideon's whole talk, but the notion is, can we take each country's relative strengths and disadvantages and have a win-win-win-win-win situation most of all the planet wins? And the answer is yes, we can. And we did this with the help of the deep pockets and the financial muscle of the good people in Abu Dhabi and Dubai of the United Arab Emirates. And so this agreement says that we're going to have a giant solar field, which is going to be funded by the United Arab Emirates. But using that massive amount of land, will export the electricity to Israel, clean solar energy. Israel will take that and send back water and everybody does well. We do good by doing well. So I would argue, yes, and I'll tell you why it does. It does because in the long term, Israel's security is dependent on its relationship with its neighbors. And the extent that we can be dependent on them and they can be dependent on us means that this cooperation isn't going to be just a kumbaya, sit around the campfire and let's like each other because that hasn't worked very well. No, let's create real economic interest. If Jordanians know their water is dependent on working together with Israel. And we know that our electricity is dependent on working with Jordan. Well, we're a hell of a lot more incentivized to make this thing work, even though we're not going to agree about everything. It's some way to do it. And the other thing it does is it brings in the United Arab Emirates, okay? One of the great things about the Abraham Accords that I would like to say is, to my mind, it has brought an end to the Arab-Israeli conflict. After 72 years of of fighting against the Arab world, a critical mass of countries in the Arab world, starting, of course, with Egypt back in the 1970s, but now moving on to Morocco, Sudan, uh, Bahrain, etc., have peace with Israel. Now, this is not to say that this has resolved in any way the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which still festers and demands immediate responses, okay? We must pursue peace uh, zealously there. But nonetheless, one could say that we can now do that in Israel without the existential threat to Israel's existence, 
if we set aside Iran, which is an existential threat. But let's put about that because we share our fear of Iran with Jordan and with the United Arab Emirates, who are two uh, Sunni moderate countries. So yes, I believe that this um, accord brings together the moderate countries in the area. It makes sustainable energy a central pillar of Israel's foreign policy and Jordan's foreign policy, and it provides some respite to the thirsty citizens of the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. Thanks for clarifying that, Alon. Now to uh, move to what you know is our, our main topic of expertise. How does the threat of climate change pose both problems and prospects for a potential two-state solution with the Palestinians? And what do you envision climate cooperation with the Palestinians looking like? Well, it's funny you should say that. I've been, uh, had uh, conversations with our Defense Minister, Benny Gantz. He's the chair of our department. He's more or less the... Um, in charge of the civil authority, which oversees large areas of the West Bank. And um, I know firsthand that he's very committed to improving the quality of life for Palestinians. And I've, uh, he's willing for me to help him, advise him with regards to possible ways where we could improve the environmental quality of life for Palestinians, Israelis. Let's start by giving Palestinians more autonomy and more ability to make solar fields. Israel exports the vast majority, 90% of electricity in the West Bank comes from Israeli exports, which means we have to make more energy for ourselves. But if we let them produce energy, and Benny's often said that the best energy policy for national security is a dispersed renewable system. Have people's uh, rooftops become small electricity power plants. And so we need to do that across the West Bank give them the empowerment of producing their energy, get them off this dependence on Israeli. Uh, that's, that's a very important thing that we could and should be doing. Everybody wins. Peace wins. The planet wins. The solar entrepreneurs win. It's a great idea. That's just one area where we need to cooperate more. I would argue that uh, I hope the Palestinians will be open to things like in areas of forestry, okay? Carbon sequestration, greater. Uh, we need to be doing much more in terms of shading. Um, so there are many areas where cl climate cooperation should be center in the uh, in the efforts to produce more cooperation and better uh, trust between ourselves and the pe good people of the Palestinian Authority. Uh, just to touch on one of the more pressing issues as it comes to uh, the West Bank and Gaza, which is control of and access to water uh, and electricity. Can you speak a little bit more about uh, potentially the worsening climate conditions around those issues on how we can maybe be a vehicle for change around it? Well, almost from the um, onset of negotiations between Israelis and the Palestinians, there has been a joint water committee and discussions. And they continue to meet. Progress has been intermittent and not always satisfying to either side. But what interesting is to say is this, is that um, when I argue with my Palestinian colleagues, the major bone of contention in water a conflict between Israel and the Palestinians is the so-called mountain aquifer. It's actually three sub-aquifers, which uh, the rain falls in the West Bank, the water uh, flows across Israel. Yeah, I went, My first time I went to a conference on this, must have been 25 years ago, a West Bank settler who's one of Israel's most brilliant uh, hydrologists argued that Israel owned the um, mountain aquifer waters because the water there is ancient. It comes from about 3,000 years ago when King David was the was the king. And so we were in the charge, and so we have the water. I don't think that's the way to resolve it. When I tell my Palestinians friends who argue that they have, you know, what they would call riparian rights, they would ever, I'd say, the mountain aquifer has very little water to give because 
Precipitation patterns have changed so dramatically. We all need to turn to the sea. Gaza needs to have a serious desalination capacity, and Israel needs to as well. So, um, so there you have it. We need to think uh, better about and more creatively about finding those solutions because the zero-sum game dynamics which have characterized water negotiations until now just don't cut it anymore. How can Israel be a climate leader for the region and the world? Well, much is made of Israeli technological innovation, proficiency, and I'm the last one to belittle it. It certainly uh, pays the bills in this national economy. You know, Israeli uh, after Israel's economy after COVID was supposed to be a basket case, but this government of change has instituted some very, very uh, bold policies. We introduced the booster shot, which kept our economy going. And when we looked at the numbers, we saw that what we thought would be only 5% growth a year turned to 7% post-COVID growth. And that means we have more money to spend than we thought we did. So I'm a big believer in, in the high-tech industries and, the, and whatever, but let's not, let's not uh, confuse ourselves. It's not necessarily going to come all from technologies. And Israel probably won't be the one to figure out exactly how to make uh, you know, green hydrogen or whatever. There are things we can do. Israel has relative advantages in the area of water technologies. We need to make solar-driven desalination systems. We need to make solar-driven um, drip irrigation systems. I don't want anybody to fool themselves. Israel's a small country. Uh, whether or not Israel does or doesn't really do amazing things in terms of reducing its um, emissions won't really affect the, Nash, the, the global balance. We need China, India, Nigeria. Those are the countries that need to be on board, of course, with the U.S. as well. Thank you so much. Um, our last segment uh, on Israel Policy Pod is called The Curation Corner. Every week we like to highlight our favorite articles, TV shows, books, any piece of content that we can direct our listeners to. Uh, alone, with regards to the things that we have talked about, what content has piqued your interest recently? Well, the elephant in the room, the one issue we have not discussed, but we cannot evade it, only at our own peril, is the issue of overpopulation. Anybody who thinks that they can continue to address the climate change successfully without stabilizing global and Israeli populations, well, they're either an economist or they uh, should be sent for a psychological observation. It is impossible to grow indefinitely and exponentially and uh, endlessly in a closed ecological system. You can't do that, okay? That's just common sense. And so we need to realize that on a planet which is now pushing 8 billion people, and it's going to be 10 billion people before the end of the century, if we don't start controlling our numbers, and if Israel continues to double every 30 years, there is absolutely no way we will ever be able to reduce uh, global emissions because every child that is born has a God-given right to a carbon footprint, to use an air conditioner, to take on a flight uh, every so often. And so uh, with more and more people, it means less nature and more emissions. Having said that, if you want to know more about this issue in the great Israeli tradition of shameless self-promotion, I'm going to recommend a fantastic book from Yale University Press called The Land is Full, Addressing Overpopulation in Israel, a book I wrote when I was recently on sabbatical at Stanford University. It won a prize in Israel for the best geopolitical book of the year about four years ago, and it tells it like it is. Yale University Press, you can get it on Amazon, you can get it on Kindle, and um I hope you enjoy the read. Thank you. And we're definitely going to include a link in the description in the podcast. So folks will be able to uh, click it below as they listen to this. As we wrap up, I also want to thank Jacob Gilman, our communications director who produces this podcast. 
and all of you out there who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast and the IPF Atida program. We appreciate you and all of our listeners. Remember to subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts and have a happy and healthy holiday season and Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach Alon. Chag Sameach Alon. Chag Sameach Shani and Max.